Hey up and welcome to episode X of the Temple of Black podcast. It's another History of Roadrunner Records episode. And in a feat of sheer arrogance on my part, I force Brian Slagle to talk to me about a label that's not Metal Blade. Um, obviously, Brian was uh, starting up Metal Blade around the same time Roadrunner was making itself known across the Atlantic. And I wanted to hear his perspective on those uh, particular days and his relationship with the label. And Brian, as you all know, is is one of the, the most lovable men of the genre. He's incredibly accommodating, incredibly balanced with all the questions I was asking uh, and he, effectively he is the model gentleman and the model scholar all rolled into one person top bloke we even get into some in deep conversation about the Japanese metal market and I even get to talk about underwater hockey a little bit so this one's a good one uh, let's crack on one two fuck shit up this is the thing dude you're in a very unique position to tell me all sorts of awesome goodies and um, the the like almost a top down or an adjacent view as to how the business was run, which um, lowly peons like me would never get to um, understand. So I've got all kinds of questions which I sent you away, but I, I kind of want to open up with some housekeeping and pluggables and things like that. So I heard that um, you were going to work on a, a sequel to uh, the old book. Um, I can't remember what interview I was watching, but um, I think. It, 2020 was meant to be the year for you. Yeah, right. Uh, yeah, so worked on the book. It's a bit of a story, but my my uh, co-writer, Mark Eglinton, who also did the the first book, uh, he's had a rough year. He ended up having COVID and a whole bunch of physical issues and stuff. So everything's a little bit behind. Plus, I don't know, 2020 is not a great time to put out books necessarily. So, uh, yeah. so now we're trying to figure out, do we wait and try to hold it for – 2022 which is the 40th anniversary of metal blade or do you want to put it out in 2021 so we'll see but it's just more stories uh it's similar to the first book but just more stories a lot of people wanted to hear more like obscure bands and all this sort of stuff so there must be a line at some point where you sort of go you know what guys the rest of the story they're for me they're just for me now well i, I mean uh there's a lot of stories, obviously. I, you know, I, I try to make everything very, very vanilla and fun, which I think is the, the way to do it. I don't want to, you know, upset anybody or anything like that. That's not my style necessarily. Plus, hopefully I'm going to be in this business for a while. So, you know, you, gotta see, you have to see everybody. So don't want to burn I don't want to unleash anybody's secrets. Yeah, <laughs> that's it. Have you got a title for the next one? I'm just out of curiosity. No, not yet. So, you know, same thing with, you know, with COVID and everything. We, I kind of started talking to... Uh, to BMG or published the first book about it a little bit. There's a couple of working titles that I'm still not sure I like yet, but um, we'll, we'll figure it out at some point. That's cool. Well, we'll keep an eye out for it, man. And congratulations on Metal Blade getting a million subs on uh, YouTube. Yeah, yeah. It's always, always nice for those little milestones. You know, we've been trying to plug away on that. It was a little difficult, a little bit more difficult for us than some of the German metal labels, because for a very long period of time, YouTube was only available by companies that were that were wholly based in Germany, so right. we couldn't get on YouTube for a long period of time. And obviously, Germany is one of the biggest markets. So once that opened up, then it, it kind of helps. So uh, so yeah. yeah, I think people are climatizing as well to like the various ecosystems in the streaming realm. Um, we're used to having everything completely on demand. So if people can put up walled gardens and sort of cater their own content within those settings, I think it's kind of it's, it creates nuance where there's oversaturation, which I think is a good thing. So uh, hopefully a million subscribers, one, one big step towards that happening. So congrats. Yeah, it's always nice. Yeah. Thank you. Let's get down to some brass tacks then. So the project, the Roadrunner project for me, I'm just literally trying to write, broadcast, talk about the history of Roadrunner Records. It was a special label for me because I kind of got in about 2005 on the what we would call metalcore, or at least what I would call metalcore back then. But I think now it's kind of re referred to as the the new wave of American heavy metal. I think that's what it kind of got referred to. Like that, there's almost lines to be drawn, but you know, it's let's not get into semantics. Like with Trivium and Killswitch and things like that. And I was just really intrigued by, I'm sure the same thing that people intrigued by Metalblade for the little logo, the little branding, that sort of mark of quality. And it just occurred to me that the story's never been told, and it's relatively unique in the sense that case vessels was not a metalhead he was just a dutch businessman who surrounded himself with metalheads so i'm thinking it can't hurt the conversation about metal it can't hurt the conversation about getting metal back having a seat at the table with other music and other media out there 
in understanding how Roadrunner did what it did uh, from the origins that it came from. So that's what the project's all about. So I very much, I appreciate you spending the time to talk to me about that. Sure. So let's, let's kick off with the, the, very, the very beginning. So 1981, Metal Blade is, is, is founded off the back of the Metal Massacre record. But did you have any experience with uh, Roadrunner either around that time, just after that time? So no. So I put out the first Metal Massacre album. It came out in early 82. Oh, and it was not meant to be, I was not, I wasn't trying to start a label. I wasn't trying to do anything other than help out the scene in Los Angeles at the time. Cause mm-hmm. this is obviously way before the internet or any of those things. And if you weren't in Los Angeles at that point, you would have no idea that there was a bunch of metal bands playing around LA. So I was big into the new wave of British heavy metal and the kind of do it yourself attitude and compilations like metal for mothers and all these sort of things. And I kind of got the idea to do one for the LA metal bands. And I talked mm-hmm. to the importers that I knew cause I was working at a record store at the time and I was buying from them. And I said, Hey, if I do this album, will you guys distribute it? And they said, sure. So I somehow scrambled up, borrowed some money and got enough money to make up 2,500 copies of it. And uh, it sold out pretty quickly. And then I kind of made every single mistake humanly possible after that in terms of licensing and all these other various things. But uh, at some point, one of the distributors named Green World, a local LA one said like, Hey, uh, if you want to start a label, we know you don't have any money, but if you can find his bands, we'll manufacture and distribute them for you. So right. I thought, Oh, okay, well I can probably do that. Why not? And that's kind of where the, the, the ball started. So I had zero experience with, with anything. And it, I think it was, well, I want to say, you know, and I was only only had distribution in, in the U.S. There was no distribution in Europe whatsoever at that point. And this is still, you know, independent distribution in the early 80s was a very small, very tiny window of just a few different distributors. And there were some yeah. in Europe, but there wasn't a whole lot. So I think it was about 83 had put out, you know, a few records. And I got a call one day from this guy named Case Wessels, who was starting Roadrunner Records, and his background was he was a uh, he worked at Polygram over there, which of course is now I think it still exists, but it's I think Universal owns it now. But anyway, yeah, um, he was an executive there. He liked the hard rock music. He kind of was tired of the of the whole corporate scene and wanted to try do something on his own. And he was looking for you know partners and just and just product. And since I didn't have any sort of distribution in in Europe, he said, uh, "Hey, you know I." said this is case wasn't from roadrunner blah 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 i'd be interested in in licensing some of your records for distribution in europe what do you think and i was like oh well that sounds like a good idea and then we kind of started the relationship from there wow it's it's interesting the story of how he gets to metal because the very start of roadrunner is all eclectic experimental some early electronica things metal seems to happen when um metal mike from Mardshock he sends uh, I think it's Hard and Heavy by Anvil down. And then that starts selling really well. Metallica starts selling really well. And then he goes, okay, there might be some kind of angle here. So it's interesting that he came to you after that sort of genesis, that seed had been planted, the metal seed. And he goes, okay, now I need to expand my network into the uh, into the metal realm. And that's how he, get, he came in touch with you. There's a similar kind of story around Neat and around Guardian and all the, the, that genesis of um, New Wave British Heavy Metal. Um, and to a lesser extent, the New York hardcore scene, I think Connie Barrett was also kind of like one of the contacts in, the, in that world. But what was that deal like? How did you, because did you have any experience with licensing abroad at that point or was Case the first one? No. I, I th- well, actually, I'm trying, to, I'm trying to go back and remember exactly the, the, the time frame because we, we had two different deals in, in Europe. We did some stuff, although mostly I was, so I got really into uh, Hellhammer. I had heard the first Hellhammer uh, EP, which Kerrang at the time said was the worst record ever released. So I go, I need to immediately hear this. And so I heard it, thought it was amazing. And, you know, they were signed at that point to Noise. So I went to Noise and said, hey, obviously you guys don't have anything in the U.S. I'd love to do it here. Can I? And we worked at a deal there. Then we ended up doing Sodom and Destruction with them. And they did a few things for us on the Versa. They did a a Metal Massacre box set and a few other things. But it was really Roadrunner and then also uh, Music for Nations because they were kind of partners Mm-hmm. At the time, more or less, I mean, they weren't, I don't think they were really business partners, but, you know, Martin Hooker and, and Music for Nation would do stuff in the UK and the case and Roadrunner would do it for the rest of Europe. So, I, yeah, I didn't really have much experience with any, anything. I was learning on the fly as, you know, 
two year old kid at the time. Mm. So, but I had a, we had a really good lawyer here in, in the U S and a couple of people who were involved in the industry that kind of helped me through that. But, uh, but it worked out great. And then we also licensed stuff from Roadrunner. We did like dark heart and silver mountain and a whole bunch of stuff. Cause you know, he had not started a label, his label here in the U S at that point, cause it was still, everybody's still starting out. So we did a bunch of those things for him early on as well. And, and it worked. I mean, the relationship worked out great because he sold a lot of records for us in Europe and we helped them out in, in the States as well. Oh, cool. Cool. Um, did, so I read a story in, I think it was the Slayer um, bio, one of the many Slayer bios that he flew over to LA to discuss the, the semantics of licensing and things like that. And you ended up taking him to see Slayer. Yeah, so he he came out to LA and uh, and spent a few days and we you know talked about a bunch of stuff and then yeah as it happened Slayer was playing and I can't remember the venue but it, it literally looked like somebody's house <laughs> people were in couches and there was maybe twenty twenty five people there at. at at the most, it was a really weird venue. Mm. Uh, and the only reason I kind of remember that show was because Case came and obviously saw the band. And even though the venue was really weird, the band was amazing. And I was like, this is, I think this is going to be our, our, our big band. And he, he was like, oh, pretty interesting. And they look pretty good. And of course, you know, obviously they licensed the stuff over in Europe and the, it did pretty well. <laughs> yeah, yeah. What do you think he, do you think he, um, you think he, because he's an opera guy, he's not really a rock guy, but he has rock experience. But you're a metalhead through and through. So the worlds that you two are coming from, yet still propagating the same scene is kind of baffling to me. How do you think right. Case vetted a band? Yeah, yeah. How do you think he did it? Because, I mean, he must have gone well, to that Slayer show and gone, this is noise, but I understand the vibe. Do you think that was it? Well, I, I obviously, you know, he'd been in the music business for a while and, and, had, and obviously Polygram had a lot of rock and, and, you know, metal stuff at the time. So I think he's very well of it, well aware of it. But, you know, what he was able to do was to just surround himself with really good people that, that knew the music, you know, just, I mean, obviously, mm-hmm. you know, working with us in the early days and then he, he, he you know, ended up, ended up hiring Monty Connor, which was interesting because he and I were both after Monty at that point. And, uh, and so, you know, I remember, and I'd been friends with Monty for a long time, but Monty went with the Roadrunner thing, which made perfect sense for him because he could really, that could, he could really run with it and do what he wanted with it, where it might've been a little bit of a different story at Metal Blade. But, but, you know, he surrounded himself with really good people and, and good people that knew what they were doing. Obviously him and Martin Hooker, Music for Nations, you know, Martin was probably more of a, of a metal guy that, that Case was. So I know that, that those two spoke a lot about, bands and, and what to work with but he was really he was really good at, at at finding the right people to to be around him that knew what, what they were doing so I think even though he wasn't a, a massive you know metal guy but I think he understood the music and understood what was good and and what what people he should have with him to make make everything work basically I have a theory and maybe you could speak to it maybe you can call me out on it but when it was like the Amsterdam office only, so this is before they came to New York, so it was pre-1986, they had, as you mentioned, Dark Heart, Silver Mountain, uh, Meli- no, not Melissa, Merciful Fate, uh, King, they had all these, and Satan, yeah, they had all, these, all these great bands. My theory is, because the A&R outfit, I think, at that point was anyone who could get hold of, including Metal Mike, um, and a guy called Gordon Beale, a few other people. But my theory is, he was going after bands which could be painted as devil worshippers. The idea being because he knows that's marketable because of his experience, not necessarily because he knows the metal. And that's why we ended up with a band called Satan. And that's how we ended up with Merciful Fate and a few other bits and bobs like that. Do you think, was, was the Satanic Panic like, was it really a potent cultural force back in those days where that might have been a, a viable marketing strategy? Or am I just getting a bit ahead of myself? <laughs> It's an interesting concept, but I think it was more that the, just the bands of that time. That's where everything kind of went. If you look at all all those bands, and obviously you did Metallica and Anthrax and other bands that weren't you know blatantly satanic as much as Slayer or Merciful Fate or Satan, which was another band that we put out for him in, in the U.S. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think that there is, and this is you know my my perspective as well. There is a, a form of anti-establishment, you know, pushing the envelope that sort of stuff. And I grew up in the seventies with, you know, Alice Cooper and Kiss were the most horrible people on earth and I loved what they were doing. So there's a little bit of that 
you know, kind of shocking people, all that sort of stuff. So I think he liked that part of it. And it was pretty easy because there were so many bands around that time that were doing it anyway. But I, I don't know. I mean, if, if there was a concerted effort for him, he never told it to me. Let's put it that way. Yeah. Yeah. I just, to me, like his history, there's, there's an anecdote from like 1965 with a band called Kubi and the Blizzards, which is a, a Dutch like acid rock outfit. And as part of a promotional campaign for them, Oh no, sorry, this is 69. He gets all these local farmers in this in this tiny Dutch farm in this tiny Dutch village, gets all the farmers into a barn, and he puts on a, like a, a massive piss-up. He gets loads of beer and a load of strippers in. And he takes a load of pictures, the idea being this will be the cover of the album. And this is all Case is doing. And then the next day it's like a local scandal because these are all the old boys. These are all farmers who have got like their wives are at home with with rolling pins just smacking and ready to go. And it was like caused like a like a, a local scandal. And that, again, sort of drove... In fact, it still talks about today, that particular single called Apple Knockers Flophouse and that event. So I think there is something to say, maybe not satanic stuff, but there is something to say about, well, look, how can we cause a ruckus with this band? And I think he definitely yeah. did it with uh, Merciful Fate being on the fil- uh, Filthy 15. I uh, definitely did it with Carnivore, with you know Jesus, Hitler, and, and Pete being Pete. Um, but yeah, I, I guess it, it, it's, it's... Yeah, it makes sense to me, certainly. But as I say, I, I imagine he wouldn't have expressed it so directly. No, but I do. But I do know that, that one of the reasons why he left the, the major label was because he wanted more freedom to do what he wanted to do, and, and kind of wanted to go against things that were, you know, because you know, especially major labels in the '80s, you know, you're trying to do anything controversial, and they don't want to hear much about that. So, so for him, it obviously gave him a lot more freedom to do whatever he wanted, and he, you know, found it into this whole, you know, new heavy metal scene that, that nobody was really picking up on at the time. And obviously he went in full bore. I can give you some context here just because I've been, because I've been like putting together this chapter one, I've been editing it now. I've been going down the rabbit holes. Um, so just before his, he started Roadrunner, his engagement was RCA Netherlands. Uh, so he was the, the head of that. Before that was Phonogram and Polygram. He was like the head of international a which got him around with, um, Christ, what's the what's the band that did? Um, oh, it's a Bachman Turner Overdrive, the "Ain't Seen Nothing Yet" song. He went yeah. around the world with them, did all sorts. But his last engagement after the RCA Netherlands thing fell over because they ended up merging all the offices into like a Benelux office instead of like a independent Belgium and um, Netherlands one. He was at Phonogram representing Pickwick, which is an English label. So I yep. guess if we think about it as a narrative, I'm not asking you to speak for him. I'm just trying to fill, it, fill in the narrative and connect the dots. He's had a really prolific career up to this point, and now he's kind of babysitting. So it doesn't surprise me at all. And Jan van der Linden was his business partner at the time for, for Roadrunner. He's whispering in his ear saying, look, I've got an import-export company over by the coast. And we can tell you that all these metal albums are selling loads. So that must, that must it speaks to... You know, what you said there speaks to what I was researching that he must have just gone, well, this is a pretty sound opportunity to to explore different avenues and have a bit more independence, I guess. Yeah, 100%. Um, I knew he wasn't happy yeah. there because, uh, you know, that was kind of my first, you know, when we first started talking, it's like, you know, what, what motivated you to do this? And, you know, and he kind of, you know, gave his background, a lot of which you, you mentioned. And I know he wasn't happy there and wanted to do something independent. And that was kind of, you know, there was this, this whole you know, kind of, independent label surge that was happening back then, you know, obviously in the U S there was us and Megaforce and then later combat and all this sort of stuff. And then in Europe, you had obviously media for nations in the UK and then Rotor in Europe. So there's this whole little networking group of, of labels that were doing metal stuff at the time that were, you know, kind of doing something fun and interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Um, did he ever tell you why he named it Roadrunner? This is like a, bl- a blank, a blind spot for me. <laughs> Here's the problem. Yes, he did. And I can't remember what it was. It's one of those things where uh, I'm like, because I, I asked him that and he had a, he had a pretty good, a pretty good reason, but they, they have a lot of trouble with that, obviously, because, you know, Warner Brothers owns the rights to that. And yes, it became uh, mm-hmm. at one point when the label kind of be, became pretty, pretty big. They had, I think that's when they did the road racer thing, because for a while, I think they were yeah. not allowed to use Roadrunner for, for a, a bit, but they obviously somehow figured it out. But yeah, I, I can't, I, like I said, he told me and I, I vaguely remember it, but I can't tell you exactly. It's got to be on Google or something somewhere. I've no? got two theories, oh. two theories from my, from my founding, from my, from my research. Jan van der Linden, he, he only gave me a few emails. Um, 
Okay, didn't want to do an interview, which is completely fine. But he said he was just named after the the character, and I was like, yeah, that feel. It, yeah, it, it it doesn't feel like that's what Case was going for. If he was, a, a, especially if it was formed in the actual company was formed in seventy eight, he must have known there would be an IP problem. Anyway, two theories. One, um, Kubi and the Blizzards again. So they're, they're as, as a band, if you read up anything on them, they quite quickly get compared to a, a British invasion band called the Pretty Things. Uh, the Pretty Things have a their first single, or sorry, their fourth single, but the first track on their first album is called Roadrunner, which is a Bo Diddley cover, which I think, all right, fair enough. It's revered as one of the first like proto-metal songs in the same sort of vein as the Yardbirds and um, Hell to Skelter. So it's in that crowd. And I was like, well, that's a bit of a stretch. And then I saw the, the single and it's all red. It's like that Roadrunner red. And I was like, well, that's one thing. Signed to Fontana Records, eventually bought by Phonogram. So I can imagine the words Roadrunner came across his desk at one point. That's one theory. Theory number two. Roadrunner is slang for someone who chases money. Usually it's like a drug runner or someone who just does the odd job or something like that. Now, Roadrunner as a company was called Roadrunner Productions before it was a record label. And it was formed in 1978. So I'm thinking this is when he's working at RCA Netherlands. So he's doing money, he's doing business on the side. So maybe it's an in-joke for himself where he's thinking, I'm kind of hustling here. Let's call this this company the hustle, you know, a hustling company. Yeah, I, I tend things. I tend to go more with your your first theory than your second theory. I think because yeah, like I said, he, he did explain it, and it had something to do with music and 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 the character and stuff. But so that knowing him, that makes way more sense than than theory number two. That's just my thoughts. Good. Perfect, perfect. But it's, oh, it's so close so um, yet so far. If you, he told you, but you can't quite remember. <laughs> I know. Right? It's like it's like Howard Stern had uh, Joni Mitchell on, and she told him who you know your, your Sylvain was about, and he can't remember who it was. <laughs> so same. same <laughs> Stephen Fry knows why Douglas Adams um, designated the number forty-two for being the meaning of life. Um, actually, no, he's sworn to secrecy on that one. He's going to take that one to his grave, so it's not quite the same, I guess. Um, one thing which king mentions king diamond yourself in case while i observed earlier that you're coming from totally different backgrounds you're very communicative and very sort of open and constructive when it comes to developing the artist which is obviously a key factor when you're trying to build a brand and build a label do you think that's a key reason why he did so well with merciful fate and why he's got the same kind of legacy that metal blade has like it's a very strong independent powerhouse obviously until 2012 yeah, hundred percent. Building that legacy. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you have to 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 be a successful label at really any level, but certainly as an independent label. Yeah, you you have to have a relationship with the artist because that's especially as an independent. That's the only way you're going to keep them around. If they don't have a good relationship with you, there's all sorts of other avenues to go for. And just developing stuff, and you you want to make it. And we both have the same sort of uh, thought process on this: is you want to make it, you want to make it a nice home for them. You want them to feel like it's a family and it's a comfortable place to be and, and have a good relationship with the artists and be friendly with them as well. And not, you know, not have that adversarial thing. And Cakes was really, really good with that. Uh, I just know my, you know, experience with him as a, as a very young, you know, guy starting out a label, he was extremely helpful and, and just did business things and practices. And, you know, if I had questions on things, he, he could, you know, help me with that. Oh, sorry. I don't know if you heard that gigantic okay. noise. Uh, but anyway, he was really good about, you know, helping me, you know, kind of run through the business. And, you know, he obviously is way more experienced than I was, but, but a, a very kind, gentle guy when it, when it, when it came to that. And, uh, and we've always, you know, from, from day one and, until now, we've always had a really good and very friendly relationship, which is great. It's, it's interesting because like from a fan perspective, the lens you look through is fan to band to label. And when you go through those kind of, when you hit those, those landmarks, more likely than not, you're going to get some people on the way who weren't too happy with the way they were treated or something like that. But the more I research into it, the more I empathize with the label as like an institution because the job is to perpetuate and propagate metal and make metal happen. Um, and Case as a business guy, it's kind of, it's brutal, but at the same time, he's he knows where he needs to invest and he knows where he needs to sink in the the hours and the cost and things like that. Did he ever like, was there any, any pearls of wisdom that he gave you, which um, you, you, you bring forward to this day? Or is it just like general conversational? I, I, 
it really was for what for me was uh, just you know running a company and being a younger guy that because there's a the whole business side of stuff there's you know when you're dealing with you know, being a regular, level, I, and I, you know, I was just a fan. I had no background. You know, I took some course, business courses in college, but I never intended to run a company. And it's a whole thing when you're running that, that it's a lot different than anything else. So as far as the, the behind the scenes business sort of stuff, he was a really big help in that. If I had questions about things, mm-hmm. uh, he would definitely help. And, and certainly, you know, just getting us uh, up and running and, and, and being successful in Europe. I and mean, we, we probably stayed with them a lot longer than we probably should have before we actually did our own thing over there. But it was always a very comfortable, friendly relationship. The bands, you know, when they went to Europe felt good about what was going on. It was really toward the end. We just had so much catalog and it just kind of made sense for us to finally leave. But and we, we might've should have done that, you know, five years prior to that, but it was just a great place to be. And, and Roadrunner up till that point, this is like mid 1990s was a really great, uh, independent, friendly, uh, good company. Mm. And obviously yeah. Case Running, it was, I mean, it was his company. I guess as well, though, you're an asset to Roadrunner because you're giving, I mean, when he's relying on third-party IP across the sea and you're churning it out and delivering the goods, then he's just like, no, keep Brian happy. So why? Well, yeah, <laughs> of course. Um, but, uh, but he was, you know, when we, when we finally did our own thing, it was, he was fine. I mean, it was like, yeah, it's, it's time for you guys to do it. And, and they were kind of evolving more into a record company that were signing a lot of bands and doing less licensing stuff. So it, it kind of was the right time, I think, for both of us to, to make that move. You say mid nineties, was it? Yeah, I think we started in 1995 in, in Europe. So. Right. Okay. Okay. Just for my, for my reading. Um, one thing which when I was reading your book, which I found quite common with yourself and Rhoda was when you're acquiring acts, it was difficult to uh, compete with anything bigger. Um, their deals were typically Rhoda and keeps all the IP It's a five or six album deal. And they can usually give a five grand advance left or right of that, depending on how case felt about it. Cause like something like Jaguar got, you know, they were tried and, and tested really with power games. So I think they got about 10 grand. I imagine Merciful Fate got a bit more, but I don't know. Um, but if say an A&I guy was like, you got to sign this band, this is the thing, this is, and Case wasn't feeling it, he'd maybe throw three grand at it. Did you ever find yourself in a bidding war with them at any point? No, never. In fact, we made a pact very early on, uh, very early on, maybe uh, a year or two into... Uh, our relationship that we would never go after the same band and we would never get into a bidding war. If somebody found the band first, then that, that's fine. Go for it. Uh, and, and, but we didn't want to get into a bidding war with each other because we're, we were number one, both very friendly with each other. And we're also mm-hmm. business partners for a long period of time. But even after that ended all the way through, we never, ever, ever got in, into a bidding war with, with any band on Roadrunner and vice versa. Like if we, if we found them first, and Rotor came in second. They go, oh, Metal Blade? Okay, fine, good. go with them. It that's was the same, awesome. Same for us. And, and that's uh, the integrity there, I, I thought, was really fantastic because, you know, even towards the latter parts of Roadrunner, like in the 2000s, when there might have been some times where, you know, there, there were some bands that we easily could have could have gotten into a, a, a fight over, mm-hmm. never, never happened. Never, ever happened. That's incredible. That's really, that's really cool. Although... You say uh, you you were Mon- uh, you were going after Monty around the same time, so not quite. Well, yeah, that might have been, before, but that wasn't a band, I guess, right? Exactly. <laughs> no, that's right. Um, were your deals somewhat similar? Then was was it kind of like the? Um, were you privy to taking all the IP and publishing? As like a, as no, we did it. A, we did it a lot different. I, I was I was never a, a even before three sixty deals happened. I was like. You know, we take the publisher and some stuff, but it wasn't a big thing for us. You know, I, I want what's best for the band. And, and we always felt like, you know, our, our deal is, you know, we're the record company and that's our, our job is to, is to do that. We're not a publishing company. We're not a merchandising company. We're not a booking agency. We're none of that. And we kind of kept that way going for a long period of time. Whereas, you know, Robert kind of morphed into, you know, they had the publishing entity and then they had a merchandise entity. So, so they, you know, in, in case wanted to build a, a huge, huge, company. And I, I was never, not necessarily into that because we, we got to a point in the early 90s when we, when we were at Warner Brothers where it kind of started becoming a big company and we're doing a lot of stuff. And I, I just felt a little uncomfortable with that because we had a, a lot of employees and 
it just didn't feel have the same feel for for my end. So mm-hmm. so we we never went down that route. But I understand why Case did it. I mean, it it makes sense. And and if you can do it right, like if you have a good publishing company and have a good merchandising company where they're all kind of you know working together, then it makes sense. And I think in the in the, at one point when Roadrunner is at their highest, you know they're doing all of that pretty well. And in fact, we had bands that had publishing deals or merch deals with, with Roadrunner outside of the record deal they had with us. You, uh, you might be able to help me with one thing, because I'm struggling to distinguish between IP and publishing, because I would have thought they're all one in the same. If you have the IP, you have the right to therefore publish it in whatever fashion you want. No, the, the way, yeah, the way it, so the way it works in, in the music business is the labels can, can own the record if, if they... If they if they deem that's what they want. Of course, things are changing drastically now, but back in the day, that's because, you know, the advances were much, much higher. You know, we were pretty much the only avenue for income for the bands. Um, so, you know, we would actually own the records, but the publishing part of it, you know, the band, the people who write the songs are the ones who do the publishing. And then you have a publisher that, that collects the money and, and pays it to you. Some labels right. will take some of the publishing for themselves because they feel, Hey, if I'm giving you this, this massive amount of deal, I need to be able to recoup that expense somehow. So, so you would get the publishing involved, but then, you know, Roadrunner started their own publishing company, which, mm-hmm. you know, again, again, kind of makes sense. And, you know, it's, you know, you can go in and sign a deal with Roadrunner and have the, all these different options you can, you can do. And, right. you know, I, I don't know that they, I think towards the end, there was more pressure from them maybe to do publishing deals within the company than there were before, but, but we did it a lot differently than that. Right. Okay. Okay. So in terms of like the publishing revenue, it would typically be the heavy lifting of getting the product out there, not necessarily distribution, but from a, uh, let me try and articulate this. So, well, well, basically, you know, if you're, let's say you're, you're going to sign a, a band to a, to a, to a pretty hefty advanced contract. And this was happening quite a lot in the eighties and nineties where, you know, it's a, again, because the, the other forms of, of income weren't that much. And this is the way the music business was. So, mm-hmm. you know, you're giving a band a huge advance you know, you want to be able to recoup that money sure. from somewhere. And sometimes it's not only record sales. You you might need to add in some extra money from, from the publishing side. Uh, but the publishing side technically is a whole separate entity. Like we as a record company have to pay the publishing. So mm-hmm. in Europe, because we're a German company, we had to pay the German uh, people for all the records we manufactured. And then they would then pay to the publisher who would then get whatever share it was to the, to the writers. And it was similar in the U S I mean, it, a little bit different scenario in the U.S. because mm. we're screwed up over here. When that comes you know to what? That, I, I kind of, yeah. I, I feel when you contextualize it in different territories, it makes a lot of sense. It's the, it is kind of like the the labor involved in getting the product out there, short of actually get, putting it in the vans and taking it to the shops. Got you. Yeah, and there's a lot of work and, and marketing and promotion and all these sort of things. It's, it's a lot different than it. And you had to manufacture albums. I mean, that's the really crazy thing about the music business prior to where we are now mm-hmm. is that we were basically a consignment business for all that time. You could make a hundred thousand records and ship them all out to the stores. If nobody bought them, all the stores could ship them back and get their full amount of money. They paid for these records back. So mm-hmm. it was a really risky, risky business back in the day. I would, I would tell some of my friends who are in other businesses, how it worked. And they'd be like, what? That's how it works. There I go. That's how it works. So it was a lot riskier then. So, so I, I, I understand trying to get, you know, trying to get pieces of the other stuff. But like I said, we didn't really do a lot of that. And then when the business kind of fell apart and people were doing these 360 deals, I, I was always against that because like we, we can't, like we don't do all those things. It's not fair for us to take every penny from the band. It's just not, <laughs> it's not the way it works. You know, I want the bands to be successful. I want us to be successful and the bands to be successful. And yeah. It, you know, you don't want to have a band that's unhappy because, hey, I signed a 360 deal with you. I'm paying for giving you money while I'm on the road and you aren't doing anything to, to help with that. So, yeah, there you go. I'd love to ask, like, what the perspective on that is these days with people signing masters over and things like that. But so I think it's like we could go down a rabbit hole there. It might take yeah. too long. <laughs> um, so you mentioned there about it being a consignment business. And if, if, if the records were returned from the shops tough tits, not much you can do about it. That's where our friend Alan Becker comes in, right? So he's the one that's going to say, this Brigera record, the one with the severed head, that's not going to sell at Best Buy as much as you think. Instead of creating 40,000, maybe go 10. And that's his world, isn't it? Sure. And, and that's what you do. You know, you, you go to your distributor and your salespeople and say, you know, we have this album. What do, you, what do you think we should ship? And then they'll, we have our, uh, our numbers that we want to ship and then they have their numbers. And, you know, hopefully we're somewhat on the same page and, and, and you go from there. So, 
that's the way it used. That's the way it used to work. So quite a bit. Yeah, yeah. Which brings us to when Roadrunner started stamping, um, stamping their claim into New York, right? So they were using the same distributor as you at that point. Were, were you with Alan yeah. at that point? Eighty-seven. Yeah. yeah, we were. Yeah, we've been with. Aside from the early days, we've been with you know Relativity. <laughs> you know what red now the orchard we've been with them forever and yeah roadrunner was was uh with them for a large portion until they finally went and uh went through Warners. it's interesting 1986 though because that's the year you outpaced roadrunner in terms of output like i think i might even have the numbers because I'm, i was really tedious and i might have actually gone through discogs and picked them all yeah, we put a lot of records there yeah man so uh up until that point, Roadrunner was absolutely swamping everyone. 981, 22 records, 82, 33, 83, 64 records. And it goes up and up and up because obviously they're licensing on mass and the case knows how to play that game. In the meantime, um, you went from 1983, 16 records, 72, 1980, to 72 and 84, 1985, 75. And in 1986, you do 103. And it's great because I've got it all on like graphs and I'm trying to articulate like, this is where the scene was. These tiny little nuggets like Metal Blade and Roadrunner who were just trying to push the scene as much as they could. And the entire the entire output of the entire industry was about maybe 100 records for quite a while. And then all of a sudden, as you hit 1986, everyone's coming in. SPV's kicked in. Mausoleum's kicked in. Everyone's completely pumping out records. And it's officially a scene. Heavy Metal Parking Lot, it's all kicked off. So for you, were you sat in your chair now going, oh shit, if Roadrunner's making a, a building an office in the, or moving into the US... I might lose 1% of my market share. I might, I've got some competition here, even though you had a great relationship with them. Or did you think? No, I, I, never really looked, I never really looked at it that way. And I still don't. I, I, I'm, a, I'm first and foremost a fan of the music. So the more people involved and the more bands that get, they get an opportunity, I, I think that's good for the scene. And, and the more of us that are out there creating stuff, then the, the scene is going to be better, especially in, in the, you know, they, we came to the mid eighties where all of a sudden the state is exploding. You mentioned all these records that are being put out. You know, we, we were all still fans, fans is growing into becoming, you know, business people and labels and all this sort of stuff. But, you know, that was still back in the days where, where our, our, like, you know, motto was heavy metal will never die because people still were saying, especially at that point, oh, it's a fad. It's going to go away. Nobody's going to care in five years. So so for me, the, the more labels involved and the more good bands being signed and the more records coming out, the, the better it was for the overall health, health of the scene. So, uh, and look, I, we're, we were, we're, you know, we were a little label at the time. So we, you know, we clearly can't do everything. So the more there's a mega force or a roadrunner or combat or all these labels that involve, I just felt was better for the scene. Which is so cool because I mean, it, it's a drastic change from five years before. And I think for you personally, obviously I don't know you personally, but if, if metal blade did go under it's for you, it would have been like, well, I'm still a metalhead. I'm still going to go to shows, even if I'm <laughs> doing my paper round at three in the morning, you know, it's, it's, it's yeah, pretty much. Yeah, man. Um, was there any, this is this is kind of a specific question which I might already kind of know the answer to because it looks like you guys have like a really great relationship anyway across different brands and and what we might perceive as competitors. But everyone was with IRD at the time. Everyone was with Alan. Did that mm-hmm. ever stir up any conflict of interest, or did anyone ever think, hmm, sh- should we be diversifying here? <laughs> there were times, you know, because because we're all kind of fighting for their attention at times. Yeah. So there were certainly times when you know we. You know, we wanted a record to do better than it did, and, and we felt, well, maybe it didn't do so well because they were putting out five huge records at the same time from other labels. So there, there was a bit of that, but I think that the, to, to their credit, they did a pretty good job of, of trying to pay attention to everybody and, and not let those things fall through the cracks. But, you know, there's always times, and I'm sure it was the same way with the other labels, where like, hey, you're spending too much time on that Metal Blade record, spend more time on us. And, Vice versa, you, you know, you're fighting for the, the same space sometimes. But, but I think the reason we all stayed with them for, for quite a long period of time, and, and we're still there, is because they've always, you know, they've always looked out for us and, and tried to, to, to do their best. And for the most part, you know, it's not 100%, obviously, but for the most part, it, it's, it's pretty good. Yeah, yeah. I did ask Alan that as well, and he was like, we abs- the problem that we had was people perceived it as a conflict of interest, absolutely from the day to day it wasn't there was no no way was anyone taking more priority even combat which was the in-house label they never took priority over any other label but it was quite easily perceived as such and that's what um potentially tainted some of those business meetings even if you know everything works out in the end 
Sure. But, you know, I also looked at it like, you know, the, the, the more metal they have, the stronger they are in the market. And, you know, this was still an emerging scene and emerging, you know, uh, style of music. So the more they had, the more power they had to get into the stores. Cause you know, Hey, if you don't bring in this, then you're not going to get this. And, mm. you know, here's like your one-stop shopping, just call us once a month and you got all the metal. So it, it did kind of help, help out that way as well, I think. Yeah, yeah. How close were you to um, the New York office? Because that's when the personnel do explode. That's when maybe it stops being Case on the phone. It starts being Monty, Doug, um, Regina Joskow, maybe uh, Kathy Reed. A load of people who are still there these days who I'm going to try and contact, but probably won't speak to me. Um, did you have a relationship there as well? Once, they, once, And obviously our friend Steve Ricardo, who was of course. When, they, when they opened the doors with Holly Lane. Uh, yeah, 100%. I mean, we, you know, we, we would all go to the same metal shows. We'd all, you know, especially in New York. I mean, we had an office in New York for a long period of time. And I was, I spent a lot of time in New York. So I, I knew all of them. I, obviously, I knew Monty and, you know, Kathy worked for us. And, you know, I know a lot of those people even beforehand. But yeah, I've, I've known all those people forever. We always see each other at shows. And, you know, again, it's, it's we're all in this, I, I always find it interesting that people go like, oh, you're competing with them. They're your competitors. It's like, well, I mean, Yes and no. I mean, technically they are, but we're also all in the same scene. We're all trying to do our best to make the scene get bigger and bigger. So it never really felt super competitive. I mean, there's always, you know, times here and there, but for the most part, we're, we're all just in. So I know all those people, you know, really well. I would always, you know, if I'm in New York for a couple of weeks, I'd always go over to Roadrunner office for an afternoon and just hang out and talk to everybody. And, you know, it's all good. That's good. I think this is the thing when you try to do something fringe, which metal is always a fringe thing. And if it's not a fringe thing, it's always the losing party in the battle. And I think if you're on that, if you're fighting that side, there isn't such thing as like commercial competitiveness in the same way that it would be in any other cutthroat industry. And so it is, it's always nice to hear. Yeah, it, it was, you know, it, it's all pretty, I mean, with all the the labels, we're all pretty friendly. And, you know, I mean, obviously there are times where you're competing and all that sort of stuff for, for bands. But, you know, once once a band signs somewhere, it's like, all right, cool. But, but we all want them to do to do well. Yeah, yeah. Steve Ricardo is, is actually, he, he catered a message for you, which I'm going to read out because I can't remember what it was. It was short but lovely. Bear with me a second. I'll just open up the message. Send him my best and mention to him that I said he was the best boss I had in my entire music career. Great guy and the godfather of American indie metal. <laughs> so, uh, very nice. I, I appreciate that. He's a good guy. So Yeah, he's a good egg, man. Uh, when, I, I, when I interviewed him, it, my face was like hurting because I was just grinning so much. Oh, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah man. Uh, Jim um, Salaby as well. Oh, awesome. Jim's great. Yes. Yeah, sends his regards. Um, so as we move sort of into the 90s, into sort of the, the, the death of, of well, I'm going to say that I don't call it the death of metal. It's one that's sort of regarded as the death the of metal. The almost death of metal. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the doors were still open and people were still going to get, I don't know, I wasn't, I was alive in 89. I couldn't, I couldn't possibly perceive it. It's, it's the decade Iron Maiden started putting music in video games. That's how, that's my metal milestone. Um, Roadrunner do like a massive expansion. They try and move into alt like metal and alternative rock and it's interesting because they do it before the black album they do it before Nevermind and things like that how did you perceive did you perceive that from an industry perspective going okay this is case in acting his master plan of becoming like a massive indie he's trying to move out he's trying to really penetrate these other markets did you ever sort of get that vibe or would you just like I mean, you know, Case's perspective on things were a lot different than mine. I mean, I, I just want to stay true to what, what we were doing. But, you know, Case, you know, Case always wanted to build a, a huge, gigantic, you know, label. He always he envisioned that, I think, from day one. So it just made sense for him when other things started happening to, to go in, the, in those directions. Uh, just a lot different for me. I, I, you know, I just wanted to kind of stay true to what we did. And I felt that if we, if we did do that, that hopefully on the other end, uh, that'll help us down the road, which it, which it did. But I don't think it also didn't really hurt Roadrunner either. It's just, you know, no, they had a different perspective on stuff, so. Yeah, yeah. When, um, I think it's 2001 hits, and they do the deal with Universal, did you, did you, uh, did, were you observing, in the same capacity, were you thinking, all oh, right, so we were kind of like in, a, in almost a scene of people trying to propagate metal and make the metal happen. Then Universal coming, buying, I think it was 49% of, of Roadrunner. Did you think, hmm, 
are we going to have our relationship compromised in any way as the bidding war arrangement? Let's call it, let's give it a name, man. Let's give it like the, um, uh, <laughs> let's give it the Atlantic pact, the Atlantic pact. Um, do you think that might've been broken? Was there any worries on that front? Uh, it's always possible. I mean, you know, things do change. I mean, look, we, we spent four years at Warner Brothers. I mean, they weren't, they didn't own us, but we spent four years there and, you know, being involved with a major label is certainly a lot different than, than being an independent label. But I think at that point for Roadrunner, you know, they were starting to sign bands that had a, a pretty wide commercial uh, accessibility, I guess. And mm-hmm. for them to be independent, especially steal at that time, if you're an independent label, try to push something in the top, you know, 10 or 20 in billboard or you'll get radio play was, was, was pretty much impossible. And again, I think, I know case wanted to, you know, expand it and be as, as big as he can. So I think that that deal at the time for where Roadrunner is up at made sense. Uh, it was a lot of the same people. So I didn't mm. really feel that things on our own were going to change. Plus they were after a whole different style of bands than we were. We were still pretty staunchly metal and they, you know, they clearly did their own share of metal, but you know, they were, were starting a lot of different stuff that, that we had, you know, we would never sign. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Fair enough. Fair enough. Um, one thing I noticed was Metal Blade had a Japan office office as did Roadrunner. I think the Roadrunner one closed as well. And I think the Metal Blade one closed as well. What is the thing with that market? Why is it so hard? Is, is it- it's the weird, it's really the weirdest thing ever. And it's been like this forever. It's like everywhere else in the world, you kind of think things all more or less make sense. Like, you know, somebody's big in the States, they'll usually be big in Europe or Australia or all these other places. But Japan is this whole completely different market. You had bands who you would think you swore would be huge in Japan that, that, that never were. And then bands who are humongous in Japan that nobody else really cares about but it's a fascinating place and you know for for both us and roadrunner you know, we had you know we were doing a lot of a lot of business there so it kind of made sense to 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 have you know boots on the ground so to speak so so we both did that for a while and it for a long period of time it was really successful but really what changed was really interesting so up until i forget when when it was but maybe mid 2000s something like that so the, the way the Japanese market worked was that 75% of all the music being sold, especially hard rock and metal, were from export artists. And maybe 20% were from Japanese artists. And this was the same in a, in a lot of different genres. Mm-hmm. And I guess the, the government at the time felt like, hey, why are we making money for all these other people and we're not making money for our own artists? So they started a lot of things like what Canada does with, you know, Canadian content where 30% of all your radio has to be domestic artists and stuff. And Japan yeah. really went that. So really in a, in a very short period of time, maybe two or three years, it went from, it really completely flipped where all of a sudden it's like 75% of people buying and consuming music at that point were from domestic Japanese artists and only 25% were imports. So you basically just fell off a cliff. So, you know, at, at some point it just didn't make any sense for us to really be there because uh, we just weren't selling near, nearly as we probably selling it you all know, the third of the records we were selling, you know, a few years ago, but, yeah. uh, but it's always interesting over there. And, and it's really weird now because you would that you would have thought, at least I would have thought that, you know, streaming stuff would be huge there, but it's just not really. No, that's probably amazing. One of the smaller places in the world. Somebody, some, one of my friends in Japan once told me that part of the thing is that I guess all the, you know, the younger people, the consumers, the people buying, uh, consuming music, uh, you know, they buy these cell phones and, and they, they just, they get a new one like every few months and they have very little storage on there. They don't care. They don't want to store the music. And it, it's just a weird, uh, weird thing there. So uh, again, it's, it, I love it there. I, I love Japan. It's an amazing place to be. Uh, but music, but it, the music business there is just so crazy and strange. It's interesting. Cause um, I think uh, out East, a lot of the time, the, the, the value systems are so different. I mean, for, for Japan, I just say it's phones, I think someplace in China, it's watches, Philippines, it's something else. It's all these different things. But one thing Richard Bengloff was talking to me about was like the the propagation of the different priced customer. There's like tiered customers. There's a $15 customer, so that's me buying a Merciful Fate album. There's a $30 customer, which is me buying a Merciful Fate album and going to a gig. And then there's the $150, which is the collector's items. And that was kind of how it was tiered, and that was it. Now with streaming, now with the onset of more... 
um, let's say more creative, tangible box sets, things like that. It's kind of moved from, from 1530 to 150. It's now like 1560, 200 and think, I feel, is that, am I full of shit? But I'm no, 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 it's completely accurate. Yeah. What, what we're finding is that you've got your, you know, your, your, I guess you want to call passive fans who, you know, they'll stream everything and they'll listen to it. Maybe they'll buy a CD or an album here and there, but you've got your, your Uber fans, whatever, you know, a, a lot of the stuff, you know, D to C, which is direct to consumer sales. And, you know, every, every major record we have, we put out these different packages where, you, you know, you can buy the CD, you can buy the CD a shirt, you can buy the CD a shirt in a vinyl, you can buy the CD shirt in a gigantic, you know, replica of a boat or whatever it is that we do. And yeah, you find that you find that there's, you know, there's the, the small people, but then there's these hardcore people that will, you know, buy anywhere from, like you said, 15 to, you know, 250 or, or beyond that. So yeah, it's, it's definitely like that. And you've got, and we obviously love all of them because they're keeping us all uh, going here is, you know, the, the, the people who buy these, these big packages, it's becoming more and more. We're finding that we can't, like, for example, we have a new, we launched a new Cannibal Corpse album, uh, I think yesterday. We already sold out of, like, yes. most of the most of the physical product in, like, a day. So we're having to scramble to, to make more. <laughs> so, uh, so, yeah, it's good. And I, I, But I, the thing I love about that is because that's me. But back in the day, it was me. I would buy anything and everything I could off of band. I would, whether it was a bootleg or as many shirts. I'll buy as many things as I could. You know, Iron Maid's my favorite band. So if they put out a thousand CD reissues, I'll buy them all and everything yeah. else. So so I like that because that's, that's the, the hungry, crazy consumer that just wants anything and everything they can from a band. And it's cool to see so many of them out there now that, uh, that, make, that makes me feel good. Cause it, that's kind of where I was. <laughs> There's so many things I want to pick up from that that are not necessarily related to Roadrunner, but there's a Japanese angle, but there's something you touched on there. Are you going to watch the Power Slave listen through on Friday? Uh, yeah, I don't know. My schedule, all of a sudden it's gotten super crazy. So uh, I don't know. I'm, I may or may not. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's, it's when I put my kids to bed, so I'm like... Ugh. I'll have, to, I'll have to just wait and see if I can make it. Um, but yeah. you're totally right. Like when I was speaking to Jim Sala, because I, I, I've, I've, I'm a recent-ish dad and I'm a recent-ish homeowner. So my records are now in the loft and my hunt for all the vertigo pressings of the Black Sabbath records has gone on hold. So when I went and I spoke to Jim Salaby and he was boasting about his um, Ace of Spades 40th anniversary box set and I was showing him the, the Jägermeister Slayer end of career edition, the Jägermeister bottle, I immediately it, it got me ticking again. I was like, I can't, I can't fit anything anywhere. Yeah, I still almost bought an Evile uh, pre-release vinyl set for their new album that's coming out. So it's, it's my angle with this was the at least illusion or perception of like the premium product. That in my head is where I'm assuming Japan is. So I would have thought this kind of market. Would have been no, and part of the problem there is exactly what you just said. I, you know, I I have the same problem. Like, you know, luckily I moved to Nevada where things are a lot cheaper, so I literally have an entire house that fills all of my music collection. Right. But in in Japan, you know, these people are living in tiny little places. They can't afford. They there's no room to put a music collection anywhere in Japan unless you're lucky enough to you know living in you know some place that you actually have a big house. But everything there is so small. So it's another reason why you just don't see the amount of collecting and the amount of big stuff you, cause they don't have anywhere to put it. You know what, man, I had a, a friend who went to Japan a few months ago and it, no, it's in the cabin a few months ago before the pandemic. And yeah. um, he was, he, what he was doing was he was in Tokyo and he was going through different, um, particularly the, I think they were called record bars and it's literally a bar which has the space for records. So he was literally a bar and instead of bottles of whiskey behind the bar, it was just records and records and records. So maybe that's how they, maybe that's their outlet for that thing. Yeah. Uh, Whatever, yeah. whatever works, right? Yeah, yeah. Okay, I'm going to bring us sort of into the station a little bit. So I've got one kind of, it's almost a loaded question. It's kind of a soundbite question, but I'm curious as to your perspective. Obviously, Metal Blade and Roadrunner, they existed along the, the, the heyday of like the big independent labels. Oh, you're, you're still going through that. They sort of called it out on, in 2012. Why do you think both of you guys and both of you as a brand have the legacy you do? What's the What's the trick? you're just lucky enough to work with good bands. I mean, that's really all it is. I mean, you know, we're lucky enough that, you know, the bands we work with people like, and I mean, that's really, but I think that the core of it, you know, is all, all of these labels, 
ninety percent of the people that work there are installed all music fans, metal fans, yeah. and and I think that the 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 fans know that you know they they realize like hey these 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 guys are just like us they're you know putting out good quality stuff and they're into it they're like we are and I mean if if I we started putting out terrible bands in a year we probably wouldn't be around anymore so it really comes down to as long as you have good artists uh, you're gonna be all right the business is taking that cathartic feeling you got when you first saw um, fucking Metallica or Anthrax, taking that first, that feeling of catharsis, reverse engineering it and going, how can we make people feel like that when they go and see Killswitch, when they go and see Satan, even if it has been 40 years or whatever. I feel that's, I feel that's the business and that's the, the labor, the, as in the operative word being the labor of the love. And because everyone's on the same page with that, it kind of makes the objective loud and clear. It's propagate metal, make metal happen, and don't go under for fuck's sake. I guess. <laughs> yeah, to- um, I mean that, that's about it. I mean, there's, there's no real. I mean, obviously, the business plan you, know, you have to do it the right way, but it, it's all it all pertains to, to the artists. And uh, you know, if you have good artists, you'll 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 stick around, hopefully. Yeah, man. So let's let's close out with. Um... 2012, right? So the Red Wedding happens, as it's tentatively sort of known as. Um, are you stood outside Lafayette Street? I don't know if the office was there at that point with a butterfly net, trying to get Mark Palmer, trying to get Monty. How did you feel when that the initial news was announced that um, a lot of the worldwide offices were going to close? And you know, I imagine your phone was ringing off the hook. Yeah, it's. I mean, it's sad. I mean, you know, I, I, I was. I actually was talking to Al Becker about this the other day. It's just. Uh, because I know so many people that have sold their labels and, and every one of them that has done that was probably the biggest regret they ever did. So it's sad, you know, for me, you know, I, I, it's just one less label that's out there putting out quality metal stuff. So it, uh, it was a bummer. I mean, you know, th- this is, and I know case wasn't super happy about it, but that's kind of the, I guess the, the bed you make when you get in involved with the major labels is that's always a possibility. They're going to, coming to do that and I, I understand why they do it mm-hmm. uh but it's just yeah it's just a it's a bummer and then you, you have friends that are out of business and and out of work and you know it's uh yeah it uh it, it was very sad i'll edit this out but did you have a hit list did you think all right monty's now available let's see if i can get him my farmer's available no um, you know it was it, yeah it was weird because we didn't you know we we were pretty well staffed at that point so we didn't really have any any particular openings for anybody? I mean, I, I know we talked to some people about doing some things and, you know, we've, we've had a couple people here and there that used to be at Roadrunner or, or CM that are with us now, but not really. I mean, you don't want to have that. I know it sounds like you're, you know, picking through whatever, but uh, not really. We didn't really do that. We had a couple conversations, but it, it was a weird timing for us because we were really at that point, pretty much comfortable with, with everything we had. Mm-hmm. Um, but with the, the interesting thing is that over the years, especially in Europe, is you know a lot of those 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 roadrunner people ended up doing their own like marketing companies. We've hired them on numerous times for a lot of our big bands over there. So so mm-hmm. in that case, it kind of worked out all right in the end over there for us. I might I might keep that in then because that's quite an interesting point you raised there. Even though I got to it in a rather contentious way, which I apologize for because it's a bit of a weird. I know where. Yeah, cool. Um, where was I going to go with that? I had a good angle. I'd love to know. I'd love to know what King's perspective is because he obviously did Merciful Fate and King Diamond, and then he came to you in the early nineties, which is a, one. It's interesting times because we have that before time before it all kicks off in nineteen eighty six. That's what you know, I'm saying. It's that year, and then it's the 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 in sort of the the, the lesser sort of like more docile times in the nineties. So I'd really like to see what his perspective would have been, but maybe that's one for another day. Uh, I know in the book he goes, he stresses um, again about how it was all about communication, and um, that's that was the common theme between Roadrunner and Metal Blade. It was just all about being constructive and open and nice to people, which is always a really nice message. Um, but that's it. I've got for, that's all I've got for Roadrunner. Unless you've got any anecdotes or stories that maybe have, have flitted across your mind, you haven't remembered why he called it Roadrunner, have you? <laughs> Well, no, sorry. I will, tell you, I will tell you one one kind of funny story. This will give you uh, a little bit of insight into Case's sense of humor, which was very uh, European, I guess I, I should say. So the first time I went to Amsterdam, uh, you know, we had obviously been working with them for a while. And I think it was only the second time I'd been to Europe at that point. I, I was, I can't remember, it was, must have been 84, maybe, something like that. That's when they did the office. Yeah. Somewhere around there. Yeah. So anyway, so I, you know, I figured, you know, I 
want to go over and meet a lot of the people we work with over there. So, so I go to, to, to Amsterdam first time I've ever, ever been to Amsterdam in case, you know, said, so let's go out to dinner. I'm all right. So case myself and one of the other uh, business partners they had there, I think it was just three of us. And he said, have you ever had Indian food before? And again, again I'm like 23 at the time. So I, I think I might have Indian food once, but I mean, you know, whatever I'm, I'm up for whatever, you, whatever you want. So, so we go to the Indian, Indian restaurant. He orders everything. So I don't know what any of this stuff is. And it comes <laughs> in all these little boxes. There's just little boxes and little things in there. You're just supposed to try a little bit of each thing. So, okay. So I try a few things and all of a sudden, I start to sweat. Like these are like the hottest things I've ever eaten in my entire life. I almost thought I was gonna like throw up. I was like, I could barely breathe. And they're laughing hysterically at me struggling to stay alive because they've given me this hot stuff. They finally brought me a thing of milk, and that 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 haunted me on Indian food for a very long time. I couldn't <laughs> go back for quite a while. But they had a great time. They laughed hysterically at me struggling with this stuff. So let's let's torture the American. Give him some crazy food. So there you go. There's one where um, uh, Case said to Alan and his guys, look, we're trying to push this band called Typo Negative. And if we get it gold, we're going to fly all you guys out for a weekend in Amsterdam. And that's uh, a story that's yet to be told by one of um, Alan's colleagues. But I'm looking forward (laughs) to similar kind of... uh... (laughs) Only a man. Yeah, man. Yeah. Uh, Well, thanks very much for your time, Anna. Um, What were we going to say? Is there anything else you, I should have plugged on your behalf at the start? I was on about the book, but maybe there's something else coming up you wanted to mention. No, you're all good. It's yeah. all fine. People did know you, where to look for our stuff. Did you check out Underwater Hockey? Yes. So uh, that's crazy, man. I, so clearly they're like not they're not breathing while they're down there. They got to go up to catch breath. So it's kind of, it's, it's, that's a weird, it almost looked to me like fish. Like when it gets all crazy and there's all sort of fish fight or something, but that's a pretty fascinating sport. There's all these crazy hockey related sports. Uh, a few years ago, uh, Johan from uh, Amana Marth told me about a sport called bandy, which mm-hmm. is uh, in your, in mostly in, in, you know, Eastern Europe and, and Scandinavia where it's basically ice hockey on a soccer sized oh, wow. soccer sized uh thing it's soccer rules basically except they have the, the sticks and they have a gigantic net and it's the same rules as soccer but it's all on this sheet of ice that's the size of us of a soccer uh Jeez. It's, it's crazy it's interesting pitch. sorry go on sorry pitch oh pitch sorry yeah. Um, underwater hockey is an interesting one because you wouldn't have thought there's a lot of people doing it but I've been to the, the world tournaments and things like that and they're all in Sheffield over here because we Brits somehow invented it and it is busy man a lot of people get straight into it um, but I play for my team Halifax Halifax UK Halifax the real Halifax and um, it's incredibly diverse in terms of I'm like one of the youngest people on the team and I'm 31 our oldest player is 80 ah I think there's something to be said for the fact that it's not. You can hold his breath that long. That's impressive, dude. I was. I used to be one of those people that go on a night out and I might have the odd smoke, like one or two or something like that. And the first time I played, I thought I was going to die. And then four <laughs> weeks later, I got like a medical done, and they said my lung efficiency was 115 <laughs> percent because I just sort of conditioned nice. myself to to go down and 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 um, hold my breath for ages. But yeah, no, I just thought I might I might run it past you as a, as a hockey fan. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I, I'm I, one one night because we're still obviously in this for a few more months. It looks like uh, I'm going to go down a rabbit hole of uh, watching a lot of under under <clears throat> underwater hockey. So I'll, I'll let you know about that. But Dude, it's it's yeah, man. I'm just I'm just saying it's, it's it's there's no age restriction. It's it's one of the it gets stuck in, mate. It's going to be a right laugh. Is it? I had a couple. Yeah, I have I have a couple friends over every once in a while here because we're trying to be you know, responsible, but uh, we did a bandy night and they, they'd never heard of it before either. We spent like three hours going down the bandy rabbit holes. It's pretty funny. So we'll do an underwater hockey rabbit hole. Here. Yeah. Yeah. I think the technology is getting there now that people are strapping the cameras to the head. Whereas before the ones that I showed you were like um, just as professional as you get, like the, as far as commentating gets and things like that. But now people are like, you can see like the, 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 the stick. Yeah, it's a stick. It's not bad. Yeah. And um, the poke and all that stuff. It's really interesting. It's really... Anyway, I've taken up way too much of your time because I just wanted to go. Uh, no worries, man. Um, anyway, hopefully you didn't hear a lot of that background noise. Oh, it's fine. There's this is all the stuff doing some work next door. It's cool, man. It's, it's very loosey-goosey in terms of formatting and things like that. Yeah. All right, cool, man. man. I'll see you at the World... Um, the world. Thing.